Presumptively persuasive, but subject to judicial supervision. It just seemed absolutely no-brainer that we need to get greater certainty instead of just a postcode lottery. I think most of their questions could be answered by reading the PAG report because I'm usually referencing the various paragraphs that if they read them, the answers are there. George and Reese, welcome to the Resolution podcast. Thank you for giving up your time to talk to us about pensions. Perhaps you could tell us all how each of you came to be so interested in the fields of pensions. Paul, would you like to answer first? Yeah, I've worked with pensions for uh, well over 30 years now, and I got my first pensions and divorce case about a year after becoming an advisor back in 2003. And I realised that there was probably a lot more that I didn't know and I've got a fairly inquisitive mind and I've always been consciously incompetent and I try and remain so. I did quite a lot of research, a lot of reading. I went on a pension divorce training course, learned as much as I could and as the years have gone on and I've dealt with literally hundreds and hundreds of cases now, I've realised that there's still more that we don't know and there's lots of gaps in, in the law. It's a really tricky area because it combines family law and pensions law. And so pension experts struggle with it and family lawyers struggle with it for that reason. So there's very few people who uh, straddle both disciplines. What about you, Reese? How come you're so interested in pensions? I've always been interested in areas of family law which bump up against other areas of law. About six years ago, I was approached by Hilary Woodward, who'd published a Nuffield report on pensions, and she invited me to co-author a paper with her, which subsequently became something called Apples or Pears, Pension Offsetting on Divorce. And we rather cheekily wrote to all of the experts we could think of and got them to answer um, the same question to see whether or not they gave us the same answer. And on the back of that, I I just got invited to do more things in relation to to pensions. And you, George, what's led to your love of pensions? I've been involved in pensions as a financial advisor, pensions planner, pensioner trustee, running an assassin sit company since about 1990. Then in 2001, a local firm of solicitors, one of the partners of whom was a client of ours, contacted me and said, uh, George, as you probably were, we've got this new legislation, pension sharing orders on divorce. We'd like you to come and talk to all my staff about it. I take you know, take it you know all about it. And I said, yeah, of course I know all about it. I'd never heard of it. Uh, but what a great way to learn something is to actually commit to talk to lecture on the subject. So I spent hours burning up on the subject. Attended a lecture delivered by Christopher Wagstaff, I think, on the subject, which I'd never even heard of. And from that, I just thought, what a fantastic area to be working in. And that was early 2001. Thank you very much, George. So all three of you are members of the Pension Advisory Group, and you all contributed to the 2019 Nuffield Foundation report, which is called A Guide to the Treatment of Pensions on Divorce. And a massive plug from me for that document, which I think is is an absolute life changer for any practitioner who is struggling with questions to do with pensions. Can you tell us about the genesis of that report and the impact you think it's had? Perhaps start with Reese. Well, I go back to apples or pears, and we've got uh, all these experts to give answers, uh, and their answers had been different. And we weren't able, in the, in the confines of the time that we had, to resolve all the differences, which included the experts saying that perhaps if we asked our questions better, we might have got better answers. So there, there was clearly a conversation to be had, but we were under time pressure to finish our paper. 
So one of the things uh, we suggested just to round off our paper was, well, there should probably be an interdisciplinary group to look at this in a bit more detail. And then some months after that had been published, Hillary phoned me up and said, well, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to go and give it a, a proper try? Uh, meanwhile, uh, in Birmingham, George was having uh, very similar thoughts and thinking that it would be helpful to get a group together to look at this uh, in the round. And we had a meeting in Birmingham one evening where George and I and a few others put our heads together and the pension advisory group was born. In terms of the, the impact it's had, it gives me great pleasure in cases to come into them when people wouldn't have known that I was going to be in the case and to see people in correspondence saying, well, the pension advisory group says this or, or, or doing something very clearly because it's been advocated by the pension advisory group. One of the difficulties is that there are no easy answers. So I wouldn't say that the pension advisory group has altered practice out of all recognition. But what I think it has done is that it's tilted the arguments and the way in which they get run. And it's made practitioners think a lot more carefully about the way in which they treat pensions on divorce. Yeah, if I can just add to that, I, I think the judgment which I had, which I think was just so, so demanding some formation of PEG was a case of WS, wasn't it? Where was it Mr. Justice Singer said in, in an offsetting case that uh, he's confronted with two uh, different figures. One was an offset value of 400,000, one was an offset figure of about 1.4 million. And he must necessarily alight upon an arbitrary figure. Well, how on earth could, I just thought to myself, how on earth can you serve the purpose of the legal advisors trying to advise their client on expectation if you're going into court not knowing if you're going to have to pay 1.4 million by way of offset or 400,000? You know, what, what a ridiculous position to be in. And I felt, yeah, that was the fault largely of the experts who couldn't alight upon a, a method of offsetting upon which you all agreed, let alone assumptions which underpin that method. And so I called, I, I delivered a lecture at the FLBA National Conference actually in November, about five years ago, I think it was, well, four years ago, I said, you know, we need to have a multidisciplinary force or body to look at this. Because how can it be right that you go to court not knowing whether you're going to get 1.4 or 400,000 awarded against you? And it just seemed an absolute no-brainer that we needed to actually get our heads together, the judiciary, counsel, solicitors and experts, to actually try and get greater certainty instead of just a postcode lottery. Perhaps I can come back to you, Rhys. Do you think that practice has improved since PAG then? Yes, I think it has. I think there, there's, some, um, there's some guidelines there. They're described by... Um, he's on a Judge Hess in the case of W&H as, I think, presumptively persuasive, but subject to ju judicial supervision, which is a wonderful way of saying, well, you're going to have to have very strong arguments as to why these guidelines shouldn't be applied. And so uh, one, do one does see, as I say, in the correspondence, people arguing about these things. And also you know, one, one sees it articulated in court. Funnily enough, I've been instructed on several occasions to go into court and, and argue contrary to something that is in the PAG report. And I've been specifically instructed on the basis uh, that I must know how to try and unpick it. And of course, one's obligation is to one's clients. And, and so I, I have done that. Uh, you know, I've, I've done it to the best of my ability. But on, on the occasions when I've been instructed to do that, and the judges have said no, and the PAC report says this, and I'm, I'm applying that. So I think it has made a difference. I would agree with Reese on that in the sense that I see more and more emails from lawyers who are concerned about what they put in their letters of instruction off the, off the back of the PAC report. 
I think most of their questions could be answered by reading the PAG report because I'm usually referencing the various paragraphs that if they read them, the answers are there as to the various scenarios in which uh, a report should be instructed. I agree with Rhys that I still see things being put into the instruction that shouldn't be there, which I think some of which we'll come to later, where there is still the, the issue of litigation and trying to deliver the best outcome for your clients, even if it's contrary to the PAG report. That element, I would anticipate, is never going to go away because, of course, that, that, that comes with there being lawyers involved. But let me ask George then, seeing as we brought up letters of instruction, have you seen an improvement in letters of instruction since, since the report? I've gotten not much more than anecdotal evidence of what we see coming through the doors at Mathis and Consulting on this. Initially, post-PAG, I saw significant improvement in letters of instruction. Sorry, it's not for me to question whether letter instruction is good or bad. It's a legal matter, and it sounds a bit arrogant for me to talk about whether the lawyer's done a good letter of instruction or not. I, I, I saw an improvement from the point of view that spurious arguments seem to disappear. But there seems, I think, in the last six months, possibly, to be a return to pre-pad days and some of the questions we are being asked. Uh, we had an instruction only three or four weeks ago where we were asked to exclude the pre-marital pension accrual and the parties actually got married in 1969 and uh, they're in their 80s and they're asked to exclude the pension husband accrual between 1965 and 1969. It's the first time ever I've actually seen a pension benefit statement in my working life expressed in pounds, shillings and pence. And I thought, well, is, is this a one-off? But we are increasingly seeing, I think, in cases where PAG is clearly saying it's a needs case, it's a long marriage, you shouldn't be looking at apportionment. I'm seeing revert to form on apportionment now being post-PAG, initially post-PAG, questions about apportionment or excluding premarital pensions drops, I don't know, 30, 40% of cases. We back where about 50% of cases we've seen this argument being run in instructions. Yes, that, there was an improvement but in that specific regard, but I think it's uh, we're reverting. Thank you, George. One of the aspects of the report that really struck home with me, and I'm sure it did with lots of other people, was the very the way it very much highlighted the dangers associated with offsetting, and particularly with what you might call informal offsetting. Do you think there's still a place for offsetting in the post-PAG world? Yes, I think there is. I mean, you've got to understand that all cases come in different shapes and sizes, and there will still be those cases where a caring parent needs the house now and needs to surrender something else in order to do a globally fair deal. And one of the criticisms I've uh, heard levelled at PAG is that it, it makes people try and think too precisely about pensions. Of course, we are able, when we're painting with our broad 20, Section 25 brush with other assets, to, to take a view, stand back and look at the woods rather than the trees, that kind of approach. And so it is possible and legitimate in, in the right cases to take a view and say, well, we, this is what we need to do. But the client needs to be advised as to what they're doing. And crucially, they need to understand what they're giving up in the process of doing that. And if, in fact, they're happy to do that, and then so be it. And I think one of the difficulties with offsetting is sort of breaking it down into its constituent parts and deciding what bits belong to the experts and what bits belong to the lawyers. Because you get some experts who will give you a, a figure or a range as to, well, this is what the offsetting figure should be. And this was um, discussed at great length in uh, PAG subcommittees. And um, George was very much of the view, and George's view uh, prevailed, that 
experts can value a pension. They can tell you whether or not the cash equivalent represents the true value of that asset. And typically, if you've got a defined benefit pension, it won't. The expert could also say what tax you need to take off in order to get to a net value of that pension. But then when it comes to, well, what do you, how do you further massage the figures to take into account this, this question of u- a utility, as it's sometimes described, the, the view of PAG by the end was that that's a Section 25 matter and that it all depends on the particular facts of the case. And in, and in some cases, a bigger discount will be more appropriate than in other cases. In some cases, it won't be appropriate for there to be a discount at all. So the PAG report hasn't resulted in a unified answer to, well, how do you offset pensions with current capital? Because there isn't a a definitive answer. It all depends gloriously and horrendously on the particular facts of the case. If I can come in from from the pensions excellent, from the code perspective here, in an ideal world, I would love pension assets to be segregated. Uh, but, you know, as Reese has very reasonably pointed out, that isn't oft- that's often not the case. It can't be done because the wife wants to retain the equity in the FMH for herself and her children, and the husband wants to retain his pension. It's the male psyche, isn't it? She can have the house. You know, she can definitely have the kids. She can even have my Bank of Bill Society account. I'll be damned if she's going to have my pension. And put a uniform on that chap, whether it be an army uniform or police uniform, and it's, it's even more verbose than that. Uh, so, you know, in an ideal world, we would love to segregate pensions and unpensioned assets. I mean, what you effectively are asking the expert to do is to say here's a chap who's got an income stream payable in 25 years time of 10,000 a year and a lump sum of 30,000 payable in X number of years time how does that compare against the equity in the FMH now I mean we, we use the analogy of apples and pears it's not apples and pears apples and pears confer some sort of degree of similarity yeah they're both fruit this is apples and jumbo jets you know how, how are you meant to compare a future whole of life income stream in 20 years time with equity in the FMH now yeah, but that's what we're asked to do. So instinctively, I hate it. But is it dead? Far from it, for the reasons Reese has said. You know, it, 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 we, we live in a world where we have to be able to do that comparison. And the experts are still required to do that comparison of the uh, what is a pension worth. And I think it, it's worth just noting at this point that you know, my daytime job is churning out the POG reports, uh, pension and divorce expert witness reports. My evening job, I'm afraid, is dealing with negligence claims where lawyers have been sued for alleged negligence in pensions on divorce. We've dealt with in excess of 150 such claims in the last eight years, something like that. And every single claim, without exception, every single claim of those 150 against a lawyer has been for offsetting. We've yet to see a claim of negligence for pension sharing. It's offsetting, offsetting, offsetting. Classic scenario, husband's got the equity, wife keeps the equity in a house worth £150,000. Husband's got a small armed forces pension, CEV of 150,000. Let's call it quits. Sadly, we also get into the area of whether you call it domestic abuse or mild domestic abuse, but there's a huge emotional attachment to the family home for women, especially if they've been left by the husband and and they're not going to be kicked out of their home and the children with them um, because he's gone off with somebody else. And I appreciate it often works the other way around as well. But very often that's what we're up against is that people want to be able to leave the home when they decide rather than at the behest of somebody else. And that's often what we're dealing with. And sometimes a huge reality check is required to to convince, you know, for, for women to understand that this is their last chance to get some sort of pension. Otherwise, they're going to have no income to live on in retirement. I think offsetting is never going to go away because the reality is, is we need to work out a way 
often where someone can keep the home for the children. But what what's the solution here then, George, for us to try not to end up on the back of a negligence claim? Is it for us to go to the pensions experts to give us the headline figures, but then be able to rationalise what other factors are used in order to, to come up with the solution? Reese is absolutely spot on. I think the expert needs to know what their role is. Their role is to value the pension and perhaps make an adjustment for tax. It is certainly not their role to negotiate or, or purport to make an adjustment for utility. I'd love to say, yeah, every time you're looking at offsetting, get an expert on board. But the reality is, and all the listeners to this podcast are going to know this experience, is that trying to get an expert to report within six months is not impossible. You know, we're as guilty as anyone. You know, we are absolutely inundated with work. And if you've got a small money case, you know, husband's got an armed forces pension of 150000 and a desperately says, now do you want to wait six months for an offsetting report? We're all looking at ways of trying to expedite this. Can we do an offsetting only short report, to, uh, which can be done much quicker? Yes, we can. We're starting to market that now. I think the idea, there are danger signs. There are danger signs. If you're dealing with a defined contribution money purchase scheme without guaranteed annuity rates, then possibly you're pretty, you're not too, you're not going to go too far wrong. If as a starting point, you use the cash equivalent value and then look at adjustments for that, you don't necessarily, you don't need an expert to value a defined contribution from the Scottish Widows of Standard Life or a James Hayes SIP. You don't need an expert for that. If you've got a public sector scheme or any defined benefit scheme, then it's going to be very, very difficult for anyone who's not an expert to come up with a raw value from which you start your negotiations. But I, I, I can't emphasize enough that we can only go so far. We can do the raw value of the pension, we can do the tax calculations, but am I going to get involved in the adjustment for utility? No. And this is the point I raised was when I lectured to the FLBA all those years ago, was we don't know the full facts of the case. We don't know what the wife is retaining. You know, if the wife is retaining equity in the FMH, which meets a very, very basic housing need, that is equally as illiquid as husband's pension, and perhaps a discount for utility should be negligible. If, however, the wife is retaining by way of offset capital in the form of cash, which is superfluous to needs, then, yeah, there could be a whopping discount on that. Now, unless you're going to burden the expert with all of these factors, who is the, who is the expert to pontificate on this? This is for the parties and the legal advisors and the courts. I um, mischievously chip in with a, a point that Hillary and I thought of some years ago. You ask Anita about avoiding negligence claims. And we thought it would be an interesting exercise if all family lawyers were made to write down on a piece of paper what calculation they'd undertaken to arrive at their offsetting solution. Because so often it's just a fudge and, and, and it's not properly thought through. And we just thought if people were made to write it down on a D81 or something like that, it would, it would sharpen up the thinking. I, I, sorry, I, I, I did live in a lecture to a firm of lawyers, I'm not going to say where in the country, a couple of years ago, and I said, you know, what's, what's the court here doing? And they said they take the CUV, halve it, and halve it again. They halve it to get the share, and then they halve it again for utilities. So it starts with 200,000 CUV, and the wife ends up with 50,000 by way of offset. Jobs are good at I mean, I'll just add to that. My my own experience um, is that if you go to different areas of the country, you find a different sort of local practice, which people believe is the right way to, to calculate the offset. And I guess that's what you were all trying with your work on PAG to stop. But I think that is a reality that there's often a, there's a practice in particular areas. Yes. The other thing that comes out of PAG, the other, the other thing that always gets people hot under the collar is questions about apportionment 
and whether you should include premarital accrual. We, you know, we know classically that can that can really get our, our clients to be upset when you're talking about monies that they say they generated before they met the other party. Reese, what do you say about this, these questions of ring fencing that comes up so much? One always needs to take the law reports, the family law reports, when it comes to money with a pinch of salt, because they're always very, very big money cases or nearly always very big money cases. And they're not always representative of the cases which most of us are doing most of the time. And even when there's lots of money in a case, generally that means that the parties are in the southeast. And their needs in order to to be rehoused are bigger. So just as a working rule of thumb, people I accept may have other working rules of thumb, but you could, in some parts of the country, you could quite comfortably say, well, it's a needs case, up to five million uh, by the time each party has a house and income provision and the bits and bobs. And so the the case law on whether it's a needs approach or sharing approach is, is such that if you can't meet the party's needs, say by reference to non-matrimonial property, then they're in the pot. And, uh, and, so, and so often, even if you've got fairly chunky pensions, say, say you've got someone with a, you know, a million pound pension or one and a half million pound pension, by the time you've divided that by two, it's actually quite surprising, quite depressing how little income that will provide as a whole income uh, life stream. And so on that basis, PAG was saying that in most cases, apportionment really isn't appropriate. Now, of course, there are those cases where there's current assets of 20 million and there's a million pound pension. And actually, it's a very small bit of the overall puzzle. And in those cases, and um, the apportionment is entirely appropriate. But I think The real mischief uh, that arises here is where what you've really got is a needs case. But what what it really is, it's a solid middle class case, which which is still needs. But the council on behalf of one of them is trying to say, well, no, this isn't. This is uh, beyond needs. We can have apportionment. Her needs can be met at 20,000 a year or something. And of course, people can live basically on 20,000 a year but in much reduced circumstances to that which they're perhaps used to. So the, the, the PAG report is very much in, against apportionment, save in those really big cases. Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer. Well, just picking up on what you were saying there, Reese, I because I deal with pension sharing, obviously I only get, predominantly get cases where there is a pension share. So, and I would say typically many of those clients in the, are in their mid to late 50s or late or, or older. And the thought that... You've got a couple in their late 50s who, whose length of marriage often far exceeds the case law threshold for long marriage, but there still could be 10 or 15 years of premarital accrual. And they're in their late 50s. There is an expectation in a year or two's time that uh, one or both of them will retire and they will share their joint income. And then suddenly within a year or two um, of that happening, a whole chunk of it gets whipped away because of the divorce and the premarital accrual being um, extracted, I think is just is really unfair and unjust and I'm just staggered that it happens as often as, it, as I see it happen. I, I really can't see the justification for that. Putting the legal side on one side for a moment, purely from a practical perspective, if getting reports out of us post takes long enough as it is, if you want to ensure that that report's going to take six to 12 months to produce, just put uh, apportionment in there because that is what really drags out, drags out the length of time it takes to produce a report. You know, we get a seemingly straightforward case. Husband's got a 
Uh, AJ Bell's SIP worth a million pounds. That's all he's got. And we, we just want to exclude premarital. You look at the AJ Bell SIP, what do we find? Well, we find out that that's an amalgamation of eight different pensions. So we now have to go back to the eight pensions which no longer exist, go back to Scottish widows, go to Equitable Life, go to Prudential, go to Aviva, and goodness knows who, what else, and say, you know that pension you transferred to AJ Bell six years ago? Can you just dig out your records, please? Because we want to know what the contribution history is uh, so we can do the apportionment. And of course, of those eight, we then find that six of those were created by transfers from other pensions. So we now have to go back to the lawyers and say, we've uncovered other old pensions now. Can you please get your class to sign these letters of authority? We get the letter of authority back. We now go back to companies that no longer exist and have been merged with the company and, say, and we say to London Life, we say to General Accent, whatever, you know that pension you transferred to Scottish Widows back in 1988, which is then transferred to AJ Bell. Can you go back to your pre-88 records and tell us when the contributions were made? This can take literally six to 12 months to uncover. Uh, so that's the first point I'd make. It is destined for a delay in the production of a report if you're looking to exclude premarital accrual. And the second point is, is that it massively increases costs. You've got the multiplier effect. If we've got three different retirement ages, we've been asked to retirement at 55, 60 and 65, and then we're asked to exclude premarital in entirety in premarital, so that's now six calculations. Can you exclude post-separation? We've now got nine calculations. Oh, can you exclude pre-cohab? Oh, by the way, the parties can't agree on a cohab date. We've got two different cohab dates. Before you know where we are, we've got 24 calculations. And then you've got to perm all of those together. And then you've got some, and you've got separation date. We disagree on the separation date as well. Uh, one of them, they've actually, that's sort of the day, they actually define the cessation of the relationship from when their Facebook status changed. Uh, no longer in a relationship. That's that's how they wanted to define the separation date. So if you are going to run it, just accept it's going to delay the report further, it's going to cost more, and you're going to end up with 96 calculations, and the judge is going to go with a pin, pin in the... Uh, so it doesn't work, really not on camera, does it? He's going to go with a pin on the uh, summary page. I suspect the next question probably has some overlap with that one, actually. But we're told by case law that an income stream isn't an asset that's subject to the sharing principle. Is it right in that case to share a pension by reference to predicted income in retirement, even in a clean break case or in a case where spousal maintenance will end long before either party reaches retirement? I I think it is. I think because I think uh, pensions are a different form of income. And I accept that the pension freedoms in 2016 drove a coach and horses through all of that and enabled people to cash in their pensions, which I think was a crime, um, actually against humanity. If I'm going to be extreme about this, I think the government should be um, hauled in court for allowing that to happen because there are many people who will go into retirement with absolutely no pensions left because they they, they went out and spent it. And those that fall, I think there are many that don't, that don't realise that if they have to fall back on the pension credit system because they actually deliberately divested their pensions um, and and got rid of them, they won't even be able to depend on pension credit because uh, they deliberately did that. But the fact is, and and this is what I explained to clients when when they, especially joint uh, meetings when we were dealing with um, mediation type cases, is that the the ideal outcome for any divorce settlement is, is, is three things. Firstly, to rehouse. So if both both parties can have a roof over their head. Secondly, they need sufficient income to live on until they retire, whenever that might be, assuming they're both still working or 
both of them might have to go back to work if need be. And then thirdly, they need sufficient income to live on in retirement. So for the vast majority of needs cases, assuming they've rehoused, they need to, to work and generate an income, whether that's through earned income, spousal maintenance or whatever, up to a some sort of presumed retirement age and 60 or 65 or state pension age would be a, a reasonable assumption for that. And then they need an income in retirement, which is what pensions are aimed at. That's what the, they're aimed at. And, and if you if you speak to um, HMRC, the whole reason for tax relief is, is so that people can save for retirement, not so they can go cash it in when they're 55 and buy their Ferrari, although I accept that that was a that was probably not what the minister said at the time. But um, so I, I think it is an asset. It's an asset that is, is designed to generate an income in retirement. Pension sharing is there in law. And I think it should be treated as a separate source of income. And I think it, apart from the offsetting question that we've previously discussed, I think pensions should be dealt with um, separately. Uh, we've already talked about the um, including or excluding premarital accrual. I think all of the pensions should be in in the vast majority of cases. I agree with what Paul's saying, but but I I also agree that you know from a legal perspective it is slightly anomalous that we've got this case law that's developed that that, that an income is not um, an asset to be shared, but but a but a pension income um, is treated uh, to be shared. So. It is, it is a quirky little corner of the law, at the way in which they work differently. I think one of the justifications on top of everything that Paul has said is that quite often, but I accept not all of the time, a maintenance is going to be judged by reference to an earned income and endeavour and, and the risk associated with generating an income, whereas a pension is in the bag. And so in a, in a funny kind of way, you look at it through one perspective and you've got a capital asset there. You look at it in a slightly different light and it's an income. It, and so it sort of morphs depending on the circumstances in which you're looking at it. But I think those reasons do justify a different treatment to the way in which we treat the unshareable earned income in, in, in divorce proceedings. But it is, it is a slightly quirky bit of the law, I accept that. I'm intrinsically drawn to, towards it being treated as an income stream. Because what is the alternative? The alternative is that you look at it as a capital asset and you can start looking at a pension as a capital asset. Husband's got £100,000 in the standard life-defined contribution firm. Wife's got a CV in the NHS of £100,000. let us call it quits. But in fact, they are million miles of being quits in terms of what they're going to enjoy from those respective valuations in the future. So I'm intrinsically drawn towards treating it like an income stream because this gets around the anomalies of cash equivalent values not being comparable. You can actually look at what the income they're going to produce and achieve the quality of that. Where I And I'm going to be very careful what I say here because when this case came out, it was massively, in my opinion, misinterpreted case of SJNRA, which was a case of Mr Nicholas Francis, who I think is sitting as a deputy in the High Court. I have got the right case there, haven't I, Reese? This is a case where it was more, it was a sharing case, wasn't a needs case. Both parties got significant defined contribution pension funds. And the view of Mr. Justice Francis was, well, defined contribution funds of this size are no different to a bank of bills account other than you got a tax charge. So why not treat them like that? You don't start looking at the income you're going to derive from a Bank of Burma Society account and dividing up that account based upon that. You, so why should you do that on a pension scheme? So in specific circumstances, and this was what was missed, I think, in the judgment, in specific circumstances of a sharing case and its defined contribution only, I think there can be merits in just looking at the capital values of those pensions and saying they are no different other than a tax charge 
If we're looking at pensions as a future income stream on retirement, just going back to your earlier point, George, about us asking you to perform multiple calculations in a report, one of the questions which we all automatically go to is, should we be looking at the income stream from age 55? Should it be 60? Should it be state retirement age? And we already know that you're saying that just adds to the length of time of the report and the cost of the report. Is there a particular age that you would endorse or should we be looking to agree between ourselves a, 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 an industry standard? I love it when the lesson instructions are state, please equalise incomes, but then is silent as to the age at which incomes will be equalised. It leaves it to our discretion, I think, as the experts. And that's what I love. And what we will do in practice where we haven't been got a prescriptive retirement age is we look at the dominant pension. We, we, we call what, yeah, most cases have a, a single dominant pension. It might be an NHS pension with a retirement age of 60, but there might be a smaller section with a retirement age of 67. There may be a case where it's a BAE systems pension with a retirement age of 62 and a half, which dominates the case. Absent direction as to the retirement age we should use, we will look at that dominant pension and say, what is that? When is that pension going to produce benefits? If it's going to produce benefits at 62 and a half, we think it's sensible to assume retirement at 62 and a half. If it's going to produce retirement benefits at 65 ordinarily, let's assume 65. The reason we'd like to do that is because if we do anything other than that, we then have to start introducing further assumptions. Now, the only certainty is all the assumptions we're going to assume are going to be wrong. And the more we actually have to introduce, the, the, the less accurate our reports. So the moment we've got a pension with a retirement age of 65 and we're asked to assume retirement at 55 and 60, we have to build in early retirement factors. And early retirement factors change from scheme to scheme. They can change from year to year. And so the only certainty is we're building in further uncertainty in the case. All I'd say is be pragmatic. Uh, I think the, the, the bigger question, and this is a legal point, is not what, what the retirement age is, but what is the basis of retirement? And this, I saw this in a case of the week uh, where we were asked to shadow a report where we'd been, where the expert originally had been asked to assume the parties retire simultaneously when the wife is 60 and 65. But at those points, the husband was aged 64 and 69. Now, is it right, and this is a legal question I'll throw to the lawyers here, is it right that you assume simultaneous retirement irrespective of age? So in this case, assume the parties retire simultaneously when the wife is 60, the husband is 64. Or should it be pleased to assume the parties both retire age 60? And so they both got, other than uh, gender differentials on life expectancy, they both got the same life expectancy. Now, that is a more fundamental question. Once you've agreed that it should be possibly, once you possibly agree that it should be when the parties are 60 or 65, whether it should be 60 or 65 or 55 or state pension age, I would personally like you to leave that to the expert and not be prescriptive. We see so many instructions that say, please assume the party retire eight. Yeah, please assume the party retire age 65 and the husband's pension's already in payment. He's age 58. Please assume he retires at 65. We can't put the genie back in the bottle. He's already retired. They want he's already retired. Yeah, well, we want you to assume he retires at 65. Well, that's not the facts of the case. He is retired. Ditto police pensions. There's no point us assuming the wife is going to retire at 65 or 55. She can't. If she gets a pension sharing order from a police pension, it is 60. Doesn't matter what the lawyer starts shouting at me. We, we told you to assume 55. We can't. It just doesn't fit with the facts of the case. Sorry, I'm getting my high horse on this one. George, can I ask you a further question, which is if you um, are doing a, a typical report and you're asked to deal with uh, assumed a retirement date at 60, and a retirement date at 65, does it make a world of difference to the overall percentage figures that drop out at the end? The answer is in so many things, Reese. it depends. 
If it is a public sector scheme, and let's say the husband's got an NHS pension with a normal retirement age of 60, yes, it does make a difference because there's going to be no uplift for if he defers his retirement from 60 to 65. He's going to get the same pension at 65 as he does at 60. There's no retirement, there's no incentive to defer that retirement in terms of treating it as a deferred benefit. If you've got more sensible schemes where they actually uh, actuarially make it neutral, so if you retire five years later, you get an uplift in your pension, then no, it's not going to make any difference. It's, you know, if it's a 55% pension sharing order, assuming both parties retire at 60, and if the scheme properly applies late retirement factors, it will be the same percentage at 65. All of that will change will be the level at which incomes are equalised. The difficulties you get and where it's not the same is where you get schemes which don't give an uplift for late retirement or don't penalise early retirement, then you will get a difference. I think another factor to take into account is uh, very often where you've got a younger wife, and I know I, uh, people who've heard me talk about this before will know I bang on about how wives get a poor deal here, but very often you do have a, a wife who's still working. So if you've got a wife who's working and earning an income equivalent to or sometimes greater than the husband's pension in payment where you've got a, an older husband, I don't think it's unreasonable that you do you assume an equalisation date of, say, when the wife is 60 or 65, when she stops work. So I don't think that's unreasonable at all. Can I just ask, whilst we're um, on this subject, the is the situation now, perhaps I'll ask this to Reese, but is the situation now that you've remedied the difficulties that you identified all those years ago? If we go to the say, if we go to different podes asking these questions, are we going to get the same answers now? Is there are there industry standards now? The PAG report does have a common set of assumptions that all involved were able to agree were a reasonable set of assumptions. But as ever, no one's prepared to give you a straight answer in all of this and that there are cases which may justify going to the left a bit or to the right a bit. There are, I would say, some some mainstream experts that uh, if you ask mainstream expert A uh, to give you an answer and then you go to a mainstream expert B, you'll get broadly similar answers and you will have a broadly similar approach. There are some more off-piste, um, if I can put it neutrally, uh, experts that perhaps would give you a, a different answer and they might have a different approach. And I think one of the real difficulties for the lawyers is knowing you know, who they are. I think there's one caveat to that, Reese, um, uh, is that if you're looking for a quality of income and you say you want a quality of income at age 60, uh, you, I think you need to be absolutely clear that it's the equality of income and the equality of the benefits in retirement uh, from age 60. Because what you don't want is someone simply equalising the income at, at age 60 and then the, the two different pensions diverging uh, thereafter throughout the, the person's retirement. Uh, so it's really important that the incomes are equalised throughout the retirement and not at, just at a, a spot point in time. Well, I think you've hit upon a case of just, yeah, this is a case that I got to shadow where the expert, original expert had been said, please equalise incomes at age 60. And he did that. But both parties who only received an income of 40,000 a year at age 60, the only problem was one was in, going to increase each year by 5% per annum fixed and the other was level. And that's might have equality on day one, but it's certainly ain't going to have equality on day two or year 10 or year 20. The divergence is going to be massive. And we were asked to shadow this report and we said, look, this is wholly unfair. This is a, a rather strange interpretation of the question. Yes, we've economised incomes at 60, but it's, we haven't got equality for life. And the expert said, well, I wasn't asked to do that. I was just asked to equalise them at age 60. And I have equalised them at age 60. 
it made a massive difference in the pension sharing order when we actually got equality of type of income thereafter. So we we were all agreed that we need an expert in a very significant number of cases. And I think that applies whether your case is in court, whether it's in mediation, whether you're whether you're settling by roundtables or or private FDRs. But George has told us the pressure that the providers of these reports are under. How how does one go about finding a suitable expert and and how how does one know that the expert one has identified is actually qualified? So that's a really good question, Simon, and it's it's a tricky one. PAG wrestled with it um, for a long time. And one of the difficulties is that at the common law, the, the test for whether someone is able to give expert opinion uh, in court is not whether or not they're regulated, but whether or not they are genuinely expert in that area. And so what you have is you have this real patchwork of experts in the field, some of whom are actuaries formally who are uh, regulated by the uh, Faculty and Institute of Actuaries. Uh, and, and then you've got uh, some actuaries who are not regulated or used to be regulated, but then decided not to be anymore. Then you've got some financial advisors, chartered financial planners and uh, everything in between. Uh, and, and so uh, there are some um, truly expert uh, people in the field who are not actuaries. So I think the, the first point to note is that you don't ask for an actuarial report because you don't necessarily have to go to an actuary to get your answers to these things. That's why we coined the phrase pension on divorce expert, the PODE. But if you do want an actuary, Reese, just to chip in there, it's really important that you actually send the instruction to an actuary because I wish I had a pound for every time I've received an instruction saying we want to do an actuary, we want to do an actuarial report. And I have to point out that, well, I'm not an actuary, so why are you asking me to do that? So, yeah, good point, Paul. And so how do we identify who are the sound players in the market and, and who are the ones that, um, you know, one would, you know, gently try and steer your client away from? And the, the market is a very small one. We looked at whether or not it would be possible for there to be some kind of regulation of PODES. Um, but that, that, that's just um, the money isn't there. The, the market isn't big enough to do that. And so um, what we came up with, and we accept entirely it's an unsatisfactory solution, but it's the best that you know, any of us could come up with, was for there to be a, a self-certification of expertise, and um, which you'll find in Appendix D of the PAG report, with a, with a solemn declaration from the expert that they are capable of doing um, a variety of different calculating and actuarial style tasks. And, and what the PAG report suggests is that that expert um, signs a statement of truth that they're capable of doing all of that. And um, perhaps I'm a little bit old fashioned, but I always sort of think woe betide anyone who puts on a statement of truth and sends into court that they can do something that they can't. And so that is an attempt to try and weed out people who shouldn't be doing this work. Unfortunately, I can say that I can think of some experts who I, I really wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, quite frankly. And, uh, and you know, sometimes, um, you know, the, the promotional material glitters and, and it all looks good, but it, it, it's not providing the service and the expertise which is required. And it's incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult, unless you, you've sort of got an inside line on this to be able to divine the difference between people who really know what they're on about 
and people who you know you'd probably steer clear of and and it's going on at the minute and i'm aware of people who have gone to experts who've promised the earth and they've promised it in half the time and half the costs and and then uh, people find and um, that you buy cheap and you buy twice because um it you know it, it isn't up to scratch it hasn't provided the analysis which is required and in some instances has resulted in um, comebacks on the on the solicitors for ha having appointed an expert who wasn't up to it. So it's incredibly difficult. I am um, from time to time take calls from people who say, um, you know, which expert would you use in in this instance? And I'm I'm happy to uh, I'm happy to share my views privately. Obviously, uh, you know, one can't do so on a public uh, forum, but it is a real problem. I think just if I if I can finish with this, uh, another curious feature of all of this is that PODs are very rarely called to court to give evidence. And so I can think of some experts who I would dearly like to see in a witness box and their mistakes being drawn out and then there being a judgment published so that everyone could see and um, what's going on. But because uh, I know George has probably only been to court, you know, a, a handful of times to, 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 to give evidence, he's holding his fingers up three um, and, you know, he's one of the leaders in the field. So, you know, what, what about other people? So, so it's, it's a really, really difficult question and, and one that uh, family lawyers need to think um, carefully and soberly about before being impressed by uh, glitzy promotional material. And just to add to what Reza said very quickly, if you were going into hospital for heart surgery and, and a surgeon said, I'll do the job um, in half an hour and uh, I'll do it for £750 or £1,250, you'd probably run a mile. I would suggest you do the same with an expert. You want the best. And if that means going to the most expensive and the person who's going to take the longest, there's a reason for that. But there's an enormous pressure from judges to save money on, on pension reports. And I've numerous times been sat in a first appointment where a number of people are put forward and the judge plumps for the cheapest. Or if people haven't got to the stage of identifying experts, the judge actually sets a cap on the fee in the directions order. So, you know, yes, OK, then you can have a pension report, but you mustn't spend more than £750. On. Well, that's actually ridiculous in my view. I'm, I'm staying very quiet because I've got into very, very deep water on that because I did have such an instruction a couple of years ago and actually did write back to the judge saying are you taking the reduced fee for sitting <laughs> um so once we once we've managed to identify our instruct our, our expert we then have to instruct them and George has already indicated what so many experts tell me privately experts in all sorts of fields which is really less is more as far as instructions are concerned uh, ask me big big picture questions and let me work out how best to answer them I suspect might be what you're going to say George but any any other tips for the letter of instruction things you you want to see things you don't want to see yeah you're quite right less is more I mean if you start having three different retirement ages three different periods of apportionment then you you you, 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 you straight away up to nine calculations and it starts getting somewhat spurious when you start distinguishing between you know I'm looking at an instruction at this very moment today where they're asking us to draw a distinction between the cohab date and the marriage date there's only four months between the two why you know what's the point you know it sort of puts a spurious degree of accuracy on what we do so less is more you know you, you really need to know qualitative income and qualitative capital possibly and offset values leave the expert to decide upon 
I think retirement ages, those are the key points. The more you ask, and you know, especially with regards to the apportionment, I've made this point before, it delays the report, it makes it more expensive. Fortunately, these days, most of our stuff comes electronically, digitally, because otherwise I'd be saying, please, I do not need a copy of the Part 25 printed off every time I get instructed. The only benefit is that it gets shredded for the hamster cage and it's kept a hamster in uh, bedding for the last 15 years of being Part 25 and Part 25 experts. So what other concerns are there in the fields of pensions on divorce now? I know you have, you've already mentioned your concerns about pension freedoms, Paul. Did you um, did you want to tell us what what remedies there are, or what what practitioners need to look out for? I think there's. I don't see it happening too often, but I think there is a, a grave danger that even after a well, even before a cause order is made, actually, that there is an attempt made to thwart the intention of the order, and 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 the person cashes cashes the pension in. It's extremely difficult to uh, to unravel that. And in fact, I uh, was involved on the fringes of a case about four years ago where a husband had taken a pension worth from memory about 750000 He was in quite severe ill health and he'd bought an enhanced annuity um, and was likely to probably die within about two or three years. So he'd completely destroyed the value of that pension. And um, the wife's lawyers did uh, challenges in court um, and the judge not only threw it out but awarded costs against the wife for challenging it which I thought was absolutely disgusting and unfortunately they just didn't have the money or they did, couldn't risk an appeal just in case it happened again. So so there is there is that danger so getting a, some form of undertaking that the pensions won't be touched I think is absolutely paramount and particularly and, and these are all covered in the PAG report though similar undertakings actually embodied into the consent order so that it's there got some sort of um, remedy if, if the person then tries to cash in the pension after the order's been made. Reese, I think, is probably better qualified to talk about some of the other issues around this because um, we were involved in a quite a complex uh, article on this in Family Law some months back. Yeah, thanks, Paul. So that's right. We did a two-part article, I think it was March and April of this year, with Mike Horton, now QC. He was junior then when it was published. And we were looking at the issues with getting protecting pension sharing orders and when's that the court is prepared to make an injunction or not. Something that I see a couple of times a year, probably, is somebody from somewhere pops up and says, I got an injunction against the against the NHS pension trustees for the pension not to be disposed of. And they've written back and they say this is contrary to law and they're not going to comply with it. And it comes as a nasty surprise to most family lawyers that there's something buried away in the Pensions Act 1995, Section 98.2, memory serves correctly, which says that you can't have an injunction against an occupational pension and a huge amount of pensions within the, you know, the, the basket of pensions which are out there are properly described as occupational. And what we're doing in the article is exploring what you might do about that. The context of this podcast isn't, isn't the moment to, uh, isn't to dwell on all of that, simply to say that and be aware that there's a massive issue if you've got an NHS pension or a public sector pension and the husband won't give an undertaking. You should ask for an undertaking in the first instance. But if they won't, it's not as simple as just saying, well, we'll have an injunction then. Another thing which I've asked for on a few occasions, and I understand that views may differ about this, but why not have a clean break conditional upon the implementation of the pension sharing order? And just to keep people's feet to the fire 
and to concentrate everyone's minds. But I've had I've had senior practitioners say to me, "Well, that's not in the uh, that's not in the omnibus. I'm not doing it." And you know, sometimes it's not worth the argument. Sometimes it is worth the argument. But I think that is another way of as I say, keeping people to good behaviour. I was just about to say you should um, you should write in and see if you can get the um, precedence change to include consideration of that. I mean, that that, that seems like a, a helpful and um, free. Yeah, I suppose the argument against it would be this. I've, I get a, a quirky little um, trickle of instructions uh, relating to cases from years ago, sometimes going back as far as pension attachment orders that have just been in you know somebody's bottom drawer for years and years and years have never properly been registered with a trustee and now you know people are 60 or 65 and the chickens are coming home to roost what are we going to do and you know if there hasn't been the implementation of a pension sharing order that was made 10 years ago you know it it might be said it's contrary to the drive towards a clean break to have left open the possibility of reopening everything all those years down the line. And I, you know, I can see that that argument is there, but I can similarly see in other cases that if everybody gives an undertaking to do all that they can to uh, implement the pension sharing order just as soon as is re- reasonably possible, mm-hmm. and then you have that provisional clean break, it, it may work in some cases, but you need to argue for it. I've, I've tried it with some people and they just won't have it. George, what, what concerns do you have about um, how pensions on divorce are managed at the moment? My biggest concern, and genuinely it's not just me saying this, it keeps me awake a lot of time, it does keep me awake, is how long it takes us to deliver reports. The difference between the demand for a POD report and the ability for the POD to supply those reports. And there's no easy answer. And sort of in part answering the question that people raised earlier about what makes a good poet or how do you intend a good poet. During lockdown, we've taken on four new actors. These are people who have got 15 years post-actuarial qualification experience in pensions. They join us as an actuary to write reports. And it is six months before they are, in my opinion, of sufficient standard to be able to sign out reports in their own name. That's how long it takes an experienced pensions actually to understand how pensions on divorce work, what the subtleties, is, what the new This is such a specialised area of work. So we are doing our damnedest to recruit and take on. Yeah, I've offered two new jobs today to uh, one part qualified actually, one actually, and I think they'll both be joining us. But these are the levels at which we are having to recruit just to try and tread water. But I'm so conscious of that. You know, we, that's going to take our report writing team up to 11 people. Uh, we will, but we're still looking on the whole between 16 and 20 weeks for the delivery of our reports because there's such demand for what we do. And it's not good enough. It is not good enough that people's divorces and court appearances are being uh, delayed because we can't produce the reports quick enough. Now, a lot of the blame, and it is generally, a lot of the blame is with the pensions administrators who just can't provide the information quick enough. You know, they're taking 12 weeks to turn around the information. But yeah, we'll turn around the report within six to eight weeks once we've got all the information. I'd love that to be four to six weeks from having all the information. I'd love it to be two to four weeks. But it's so difficult to recruit. You can't recruit ready-trained pensions on divorce experts. They do not exist. Everyone who could be recruited and who I know who I've tried to recruit, I've got on board, I've done my damnedest to poach them from all the other firms to recruit the poets. But it takes six months to build, to train a fully qualified pensions actually to be a poet. And so there's going to be no quick solution to this 
length of time it's taken to deliver reports at the moment. My main concerns at the moment, aside from the fact that I still don't think the PAG report has had the impact I would have liked to have seen on getting rid of uh, premarital ex- accrual being excluded in uh, the vast majority of needs cases. I've got a real concern at the moment about what appears to me as a, as a, a relative outsider um, to the court system, that the court system it just seems to be in meltdown in terms of getting consent orders and decree absolutes out at the moment. And a client of mine who's, so going back over the last few years, going probably back to 2008, 2009, in all the lectures I've been delivering, um, I've been encouraging people to delay applying for the decree absolutes until you've got the consent order back from the court. You've diarized the 28 days. So you take away the risk of the person dying during that 28 day period. But I've got a client at the moment where the consent order was made in um, early April. We didn't find out about it until the end of May. So we were already about two weeks past the 28-day period. The decree absolute was applied for. Barry St. Edmunds are now told that client. uh, She rang them personally um, uh, last week. She was told 14 to six weeks for the decree absolute. I think that is absolutely disgraceful. I would seriously question, um, I don't know whether I'm right or wrong, but I would seriously question whether the court um, has a claim against them if the husband dies in this case. We've got a global pandemic going on at the moment. And, you know, decree absolutes typically, in my experience, used to take about 48 hours with the local uh, county courts. Um, so 14 to 16 weeks when uh, the court order doesn't take effect, the pension sharing order doesn't take effect until you've got that decree absolute, I think is disgraceful. And um, I think the court's got serious questions to answer. I mean, I have to say something back in relation to that, Paul. I mean, there is just a, a an absolute crisis in respect of having deputies and district judges and the amount of box work, which isn't to say that the effect of that isn't isn't chronic for people. But um, to resolve that, what we need is more judges and more, more judicial time. But obviously, that wouldn't resolve things for the client. What, what about you, Reese? What concerns do you say there are at the minute? I agree with everything that George and Paul says. And I didn't know what George was going to say. But my my point was, and not to detract from what Paul is saying, which is a very serious point, but I share the concern about the length of time it takes to, to get a report. George is, you know, lying lying awake at night worrying about this. But of course, I'm in court and seeing the frustration with judges at not being able to get cases dealt with because we're waiting for the pension report uh, or an FDR is being adjourned because the pension report isn't available. And, and sometimes, you know, I'm a big fan of having a good quality pension report, but the, you know, the tail can't wag the dog and I don't want the court system to run out of patience with podes because they can't deliver um, more swiftly. And so, um, you know, George, from a kind of a providing a service point of view is concerned, but I, I'd be very unhappy if a point of view arose that, well, we just can't wait for these people, if, you know, and we're just going to crack on and, and do, you know, do something, you know, without them. So that's my concern. I think it would be really helpful, uh, Reese, though, if uh, family lawyers, I see this a lot, family lawyers, saw that there was a need for a pension report very early on in the in the process and got that report process going uh, because all too often I get emails from a couple who have reached the end of or very close to the end of a mediation 
or series of mediation sessions. And then it's got to the, the tricky question of pensions. And the mediator says, now you need to go and see Paul. No, actually, they needed to come and see me right, right at the very start. So, and then they, meanwhile, while we get the report process going, they can carry on and deal with the rest of it. So, you know, they could be a year or two years into a mediation process sometimes. And then they get to the point they come and see me and, and I have to deliver the, the message. Well, this could take up to a year to get the report. And they say, why didn't someone tell us sooner? And so I think that if family lawyers and mediators could much more quickly identify these cases and get the report process going, I think that would help. Paul, I agree with that. But one of the other problems that we have is that, you know, not everyone is the hypothetical reasonable person when dealing with this. And quite often the holder of valuable pension wealth doesn't want a, 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 a report done. And so they're doing everything they can, including objecting at a first appointment to the instruction of a PODE. And so sometimes just the very nature of the argument is, is that, um, you know, you've got to get it before a judge uh, in, order to, in order to force one um, to be ordered. It's not just getting in front of the judge. I, I can cite an instruction we received today. And the instruction reads, on the 30th of January 2021, the court directed that an expert will be instructed. That's us. Uh, we appreciate that there's been some slippage in the time frame for this report, which is required by the 14th of May. Okay, the FDR is on the 9th of September, and they've only just got around to agreeing and letting instructions seven months later. Oh, can I just chip in on that? Because that's a big thing. I have seen over and over and over again just the most awful arguments in solicitors' correspondence, ridiculous yep. arguments going backwards and forwards about pointless things. Someone's written fair value in the report, and then the other side furiously tracks it all out and says, no, it's true value. And, and there's these pointless semantic debates and arguments going on and that really don't amount to much at all. And, 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 and the silly nitpicking about various things. And I'm a, I'm a really big fan of compliance with uh, Part 25, but compliance plus plus. You're required under uh, Part 25 to set out the range of questions you're asking. Why don't you just turn up with your letter Better still, send your proposed letter to your opponent three or four days before the FDR of the, the first appointment. So they can't complain. They haven't had time to consider it. And then you say to the judge, I don't want any nonsense, judge. Can you please just order this will be the letter? And then if there is any of this silliness to be uh, uh, to, to be debated, it can be done there and then. Now, I appreciate some judges say, well, it's not for me to write the a report, but I think there are many judges out there who are quite sympathetic to saying, "Well, look, that's a that's a smart-looking letter. That, that's you know, and it was delivered in time." Any any amendments you want, Mr. Scroggins? No. Okay. Well, we'll have that one then. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rhys. And another topic which I think sends shivers down the spine of many practitioners is when uh, an older client walks in, and we're we're forever being told. I don't I don't know what it's based on, but we're forever being told that there's a a greater number of silver splitters, as they, as they tend to get called, and pensions in payment. What should people look out for, particularly when a client walks in and there are pensions in payment in their case? There's a number of issues here, uh, Simon. The first one, I cannot believe 20 years after pension sharing came in that I still see letter instructions which say something along the lines of, uh, as you're aware, because the pension payment cannot be shared, can you therefore please just look at offsetting? We see this 20 years on. A pension payment can be shared. That's the first point I'm just ram home. The second point is it can be incredibly difficult. And we often sort of being criticised or 
that people see our reports and you know they go off in high dudgeon. And the reason is, is that once you start getting to older ages, CVs or cash equivalent values become increasingly volatile. The cash equivalent value of a pension payment is how much does the scheme need to put on one side to pay out that pension for the rest of that person's life. So if you've got a chap aged 80 getting divorced, and we see it, we saw one the other week, it had an instruction where the chap was aged 95 getting divorced. But even, you know, 80 is not unusual these days. We see a case where a husband is aged 80 getting divorced. He's in receipt of a pension of 20,000 a year. That cash equivalent value is only going to be about 150,000 because the saying he's going to live for another seven years, therefore seven years times 120, 140,000, put on 10 grand for good luck, 150,000 CEV. Wife is 20 years, let's say the wife is 15 years younger. She's 65. Any pension sharing order she gets from equality of income is going to have to work, but she's going to assume that she retired, she's going to live for another 22 years. So you're asking a pension which has been calculated that's going to last seven years suddenly to last 22 years in the wife's hands. And this is where you start seeing pension sharing orders for equality of income of around about 80%, something like that. And husband's saying, God, one earth is what's happening here. And it's because the wife is going to need probably three times as much pension capital as her husband because she's got, she's got to survive 25 years compared to the husband's seven years, three years longer. So three times as long as her husband she's going to survive. So she's going to need three times as much pension capital. And so it can be some, you know, we are asked to make a, a silk purse out of a sow's ear here. And this is the real, real problem. Old age and pension sharing, we can throw out some horrible, horrible calculations, which everyone starts getting a bit crazy over. And perhaps the argument is it's equality of capital at that sort of age. I don't know. I think also, you know, one can be imaginative. There could be a whole host of reasons why that this wouldn't be appropriate for that 95-year-old. But I think I would at least ask that 95-year-old, or if I was acting for the wife, whether actually on reflection could they just stay married that you know there may be some reasons he might be you know marrying a 25 year old next week and you know they do need their decree absolute but just sometimes think outside the box and you know there'd be a widow's pension available there that you know might well be available in the not too distant future and 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 something could be done that doesn't look um, like a conventional outcome. Can I just mention one other thing very briefly about pensions in payment and that is the way in which pensions get implemented. Lots of you have been to Paul's lectures will remember Paul's very helpful graph showing uh, you know graphically how a pension implementation works and what happens is you get to transfer day which is the later of decree absolute or 28 days time for appeal plus seven days. And that is the day when the pension is valued when you when it's in, when it's implemented or what's in the pension at transfer day. And so if it takes a very long time for the pension to be implemented, if the pension is in payment, the trustees are statutorily bound to look back at to what was in the pension on transfer day. And that might mean a significant clawback in respect of money that's already been paid out to the husband uh, or an adjustment to account for the extra he's had. So that's something, you know, you don't want to hang around implementing pension sharing orders when the pension is in payment. Just picking up on the argument that George ended with, with which maybe that's a case for equality of capital. You know, we, we, we live in a even more so with the recent divorce bill, uh, but the we live in a time when for a long time, in fact, it's been uh, no-fault divorce. And and if it's the case that the husband has left the wife and she's the younger party by 15 or 20 years, 
is it effectively making it her fault um, by equalising on an equality of capital basis? Because she she only gets a, he gets to have a hundred thousand with probably three or four years life expectancy. Who knows? And she's got a hundred thousand with maybe twenty twenty five years life expectancy. Suddenly becomes it almost becomes her fault, and that just seems inequitable to me. And so. But I'd also pick up on the uh, the point you raised, uh, Reese, about um, having that conversation. I think in most cases, because I deal with many cases a year where we're dealing with people in their 70s and 80s, and it's becoming more and more prevalent um, in my experience, that the lawyers are always um, having that conversation about the, the options and the alternatives. I think that is a sensible conversation that's usually had by the time they come and see me. And then I have that conversation. And usually it comes down to, because it's probably 90% women that I'm dealing with, probably 95% women I'm dealing with. There's a, an emotional uh, decision being made here that they just don't want to be attached to this man for the rest of their lives, however long that's going to be. And I had a lady just six months ago who not only made the decision to continue with the divorce, but actually made the decision not to go with a pension share, which I thought was appalling. She said, I know you won't want to hear this, but that's the decision I've made because I, he'll get so angry. And even at that age, uh, the children were involved um, heavily. And so very often it is the emotional um, drivers that, uh, that determine the outcomes of these cases. Well, that's the difficulty with um, all areas of family law, isn't it? It's that there are objective and mathematical factors buffering up against emotional factors. All right, well, just to finish off then, could you each tell us the thing that you would decide to change in respect of how pensions are dealt with on divorce. Would you like to go first, George? Yeah, I'm sorry, litigants in person. I, I, it's like talking to, I know some people go litigants in person because of very, very short resources and they've got no choice, apparently. I just cannot believe people want any sizable pension fund is involved. They are risking going litigants in person and it's uh, I think it should be banned. There you go. Can I, it, can I just ask? Obviously, they've got the mon- money to afford a lawyer. If they've got the money to afford a lawyer and they don't afford a lawyer, tough. They, they get what they deserve. Okay. George, can I can I just ask you something about that? In terms of being instructed where one party is a litigant in person, does that cause you difficulties? If both parties are litigant in person, we won't take the instruction. I mean, we, we, I mean, I know about this, but look, when we've got so much demand for what we do from lawyers who support us time after time after time, why should we uh, sort of dilute the service we can offer to lawyers for one-off litigants in person? So litigants in person on both sides we won't take. If there's litigant in person on one side and a firm of lawyers on the other side who we respect and we know will control the case for want of better description, we will grudgingly take that instruction on. We have had, thankfully, in the five or six thousand reports we've written, we've had so, so few complaints we've had to deal with. We've had probably no more than half a dozen complaints. I think five out of those six have been litigants in person who just simply do not understand the process, what we're doing, and it's if they don't get what they want, it's our fault. And I'm just I'm fed up with them. <laughs> but it can't be. Just uh, chipping in, if I may, on the question of litigants in person, a very important document, which we haven't mentioned yet, is the Law for Life Advice Now document. Law for Life have produced a litigant in uh, person friendly version of the Pension Advisory Group report, and it's freely accessible online. You can just download the PDF uh, from the Advice Now website. And that's just a brilliant resource for people who, you know, perhaps can't afford a lawyer. And it's encouraging, encouraging them to think very carefully about pensions. It's also a very useful resource for a lawyer to direct somebody to who doesn't want to instruct a lawyer and they won't believe anything that the lawyer says. 
but you can say, well, look, go online, have a look at this neutral, independent document, which will tell you how things work. And it's got lots of tips, for instance, about instructing of experts and things like that. So there's 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 a way of we're not going to sort out the, the, the problem of litigant in person mistrust with the system. But that is an extremely valuable uh, document um, to uh, direct people to. And I commend it. I agree absolutely with Reese. Um, Reese and I were both um, party to um, uh, helping with that report. Um, I think when you read that report, it makes it very clear that this is a really complex area. And um, I think most uh, reasonable people, I accept that not all litigants in person, you, you might seem to be uh, deemed to be reasonable, but I think most reasonable people reading that report will realise that it's far beyond their competency and they need professional help. So, Reese, come on, you tell us, what would you change on pensions on divorce? I would um, look back to the pension trustees and I would wave my magic wand so that they would deliver to the PODES the information they're asked to deliver more timely so that it would cut down on these delays. And you, Paul, what would you change? I would like to see premarital accrual excluded from all pension sharing orders in the vast majority of needs cases along the lines of the guidance from the pensions advisory group. And when are we going to see the three of you again in the pensions advisory group? When are you going to be revisiting and updating your work? I'm aware that over the last couple of years, uh, Hilary Woodward, who was our effectively our chief executive, has been carefully collecting observations, suggestions, criticisms, and terrifyingly, there is some intention to go back and have another look at it all. But I hope it's it's in the long grass for the time being. But I, I suppose in the next year to 18 months, we, we'll have a look through those questions in a systematic way and see whether or not it justifies amending the report at all or whether a short article by way of supplement or something could be done. Well, we'll all look forward to that. Thank you all for coming on the podcast this afternoon. Certainly been interesting. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Truly fascinating people. Thank you.